Welcome to Tom SciCast, and I'm your host, Dr. Tom Kennedy. On today's episode, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite subjects. Where did we come from? And what is our connections to the universe? I know, that sounds pretty profound, doesn't it? Well, it kind of is. You know, when I was a kid, the first type of scientist that I wanted to be was an astronomer. I watched Carl Sagan on his PBS series called Cosmos, and I read his books several times. And Carl Sagan had this statement that just has stuck with me my entire life. He said, we are stardust. And I kind of wish I could say it like him, but there is no way I can recreate his voice. See, you'll just have to bear with me on the way I say it. We are stardust. Now, wait a second. We're stardust. What does that mean? And this is what I want to talk about today. Our connections to the universe. Now, for those of you who've listened to some of my other podcasts, you know that I like to go back in time. Way back in time. In fact, let's go all the way back 13.7 billion years ago to the beginning of the universe. Because believe it or not, life has its beginnings that or at least the events that led to the origins of life began with the start of the universe, the Big Bang. Now you're probably going, wait, there's no life at the start of the universe. And you know what? You are absolutely right. But life is made up of matter and it's energy that brings life to matter, right? You can't have life without energy and matter. Life needs energy, but life is also made up of building blocks. And at our most fundamental level, we're made up of atoms. And those atoms are made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And guess what? All the matter in the universe was created during the Big Bang. And also, all of the energy in the universe so if protons, neutrons, and electrons make up atoms, those fundamental building blocks were made during the Big Bang. So that means that the protons that make up your carbon atoms, right? Your carbon is made up of six protons, six neutrons, and six electrons. And some carbon atoms have seven neutrons and eight neutrons. Those are isotopes. But the point that I'm trying to make is that at our most fundamental level, these building blocks, these subatomic particles, are 13.7 billion years old. That's wild, isn't it? Now, you noticed I may have kind of glossed over those neutrons a little bit. And I mentioned the element carbon as well. I know. Well, it turns out that we have other connections to the universe. This is where the stardust comes in. Okay. The universe expanded rapidly after the Big Bang, and we've got all of these protons and electrons and lots of energy, and actually not a lot of neutrons. And in fact, even today, the universe is basically 75% hydrogen. Hydrogen is element number one, is a proton with an electron. 
and it's about 23% helium, which is two protons and two neutrons and two electrons. Okay, so the universe is expanding, it's cooling, and there were some you know, gravitational anomalies first thing. And this allowed for these, these gas clouds of hydrogen to collapse and form stars, and stars also formed the galaxies as well. Now, at the heart of stars, what makes a star unique is a process called nuclear fusion. You see, stars are giant balls of gases. And if you remember from physics, if you compress a gas, the temperature goes up. So stars are enormous, right? And they start collapsing under the weight of their own gravity until eventually their cores heat up. So they get so hot that the protons, they are, they have so much kinetic energy that they overcome the repulsive force of both being positively charged, slam into each other, along with some electrons slamming in there as well, and they begin to fuse and form helium nuclei. And also a lot of neutrons are formed in these stars as well. So a star like our sun has been doing this for about four and a half billion years, and releasing energy. Now, I'm gonna come back to that because the energy released from our sun is another one of our connections to the universe. But why are we stardust? Okay, we know that these basic building blocks of protons, neutrons, and electrons, or especially the protons and the electrons, you know, they've been in the universe for 13.7 billion years. I know, the building blocks in your body, they've been around a long time, but, Life is based on the element carbon. And in fact, you're 96% hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, along with some phosphorus, some calcium, some sulfur, some sodium, some potassium, a little bit of iron mixed in as well, right? These are heavier elements. And if you remember, when I told you about the Big Bang, it formed almost all hydrogen, helium, and I didn't mention this one, but a little bit of lithium too. And think about this. There was none of these heavier elements much beyond helium. So all the elements that life uses, like carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, wasn't made during the Big Bang. They were made inside of stars by nuclear fusion. I know, wait a second. Didn't I say nuclear fusion fused hydrogen atoms into helium atoms? You're correct. That's what our sun has been doing. But what happens at the end of a star's life is that it runs out of hydrogen. And because it runs out of hydrogen, fusion stops. Now fusion is releasing energy and it halts the, the force of gravity preventing the star from collapsing. So guess what? You run out of hydrogen, nuclear fusion stops, a star's core will collapse and heat up. And the nuclear fusion will begin again and what happens is large stars will go through various rounds of nuclear fusion where they start making carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, all these heavier elements used by life. And some of those stars, while they're actually shedding off those outer layers, they'll shed off those layers of those heavier elements. Now, some stars that are a little bit bigger than ours, you know, probably 10 times the size of ours, I actually don't remember the exact threshold but large stars, when they reach the end of their life, basically 
when they begin to fuse iron and nickel, that's important, right? When they start to fuse those two elements, they don't release enough energy to counteract gravity. And guess what? Those stars explode and they form what is called a supernova explosion. Now, I have greatly simplified what happens for a supernova. I'm not even sure of all the nuts and bolts of it myself. And there's also different types of supernovas. But supernovas are really important. These are when a star explodes. And I mean, it is catastrophic explosions. These are some of the biggest things that happen in the universe. A single supernova will put out more energy in a day than our sun will in a billion years. I know, isn't that crazy? But here's why they're important. You see, when a sun goes boom, or a star goes boom and blows up, all those heavier elements of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, calcium, potassium, sodium, chlorine, all these things that we need to form life, they get scattered back out into the universe. And then those heavier elements can be used to form second and third generation solar systems like ours. So here's what I'm saying to you. Our Earth, a rocky planet, those rocks, the atoms in those are elements of like silicon and oxygen and iron and magnesium and all of these other heavier elements. They were formed inside of a star that lived and died billions of years ago. We're made up of the remnants of dead stars. We are stardust. And this gets better. Any of you out there wearing gold, silver, platinum, titanium? Guess what? Elements heavier than iron are not really made during nuclear fusion when a star is still going. Gold, for instance, is actually made when the star blows up. That your gold jewelry, the gold in your jewelry was made from a star blowing up? Isn't that crazy? So, I mean, think about this. We're, we're stardust, right? So the carbon atoms in your body have been around for about five billion years or even longer. They are older than our solar system. And five billion years and the life of a carbon atom is short. I mean, it's just getting started. It's been estimated that carbon atoms might live a billion, trillion, trillion years. That that's how stable they are. It's amazing. I think it's like 10 to the 35 or something like that. At least protons can last that long. So a carbon atom can last a very long time. And so can most stable isotopes of, of these elements. So, man, just think about the journey of these carbon atoms in your body, right? I mean, they were made inside of a star that exploded. They floated around in space for, I don't know, a billion or two years. And then they got caught up in our solar system, our, our planetary nebula, and then formed on this planet. And you have carbon atoms. Well, every carbon atom in your body was once part of a carbon dioxide molecule fixed by a plant and photosynthesis into a carbohydrate assimilated by your body to form all of the and to form all the organic molecules in you. 
Then we breathe them back out into the atmosphere where they can be once again recycled by plants in a photosynthesis. They could be turned into calcium carbonate and actually lithified. Oh, lithified, that's a good word. I like that one. Lithos means rocks. So lithification is turned into rocks. So if you've got nice travertine floors or you've seen like calcium carbonate or limestone, guess what? That's carbonate rock. And uh, that's when you take carbon dioxide out of the carbon cycle and stick it in there as rocks. You can also form coal and oil with that as well. So you have carbon atoms in you that were not only in plants not too long ago, in the atmosphere is carbon dioxide. Some of that carbon dioxide may have belted up from the earth through volcanic eruptions. That carbon has been inside the earth for hundreds of millions of years or even billions of years. You have carbon in you that was in oil and that oil or even coal may have been created during the Carboniferous over 325 million years ago. You know, coal and oil is a remnant of plants and animals. You probably have carbon atoms in you and oxygen and nitrogen atoms that were in dinosaurs 100 million years ago. Wow, what a ride. And where were those carbon atoms in you now gonna be in the future? So that's pretty awesome, isn't it? I mean, think about that. We're connected to the universe. I mean, let's go through this. A carbon atom, a nitrogen atom, all the elements are made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. So the fundamental building blocks of your elements were created 13.7 billion years ago. So these things floated around in space. They've been inside of stars. They've been inside of rocks. They've been gases in the atmosphere. And now they're in you. And probably in plants and dinosaurs and fish and mollusks and even flies. Who knows? That's pretty amazing. And like I said, we're stardust because these heavier elements that are used to make life in our planet were created inside of stars that lived and died billions of years ago. Now, that is not our only connection to the universe. Another ingredient that you need for life, and you're probably thinking you need some carbon, you need some organic molecules, you need water, is you need energy. Life cannot exist without energy. Now, there are ways that life can exist without the sun. And those are thermal vent creatures and they live off the energy that's coming from the earth. Most of the heat in the earth's core is generated by radioactive decay, which has kept the earth warm for billions of years. And there are organisms that can survive off of that, which is really cool because that means we might find a life elsewhere in the solar system that's not dependent on the sun. But for the vast majority of life on this planet, I mean the vast majority, depends either directly or indirectly on the sun. And the sun is a star. Look up in the night sky. You can see thousands of stars on a clear night. Our sun is a star just like any of those. So once again, another connection to the universe. In this case, another connection to stellar processes. Fusion. Fusion not only makes the elements that made life possible, it also generates the energy that makes most of this life possible on our planet. Now, I know, I know that a couple of you are going, 
Now, wait a second. The Earth's oceans cover about 75% of the planet, right? So how can you say that sunlight, that most of life on this planet relies on sunlight? Remember I said either directly, like plants, or indirectly, like you and I, because we eat plants that depend on sunlight. But if you go out to the oceans, you're right. The most common habitat on this planet is actually in the perpetual total darkness of the ocean depths. I know, it never sees sunlight, but the top layers of the oceans do. And in those top layers of the ocean, you have plankton. You have photosynthetic plankton. And that photosynthetic plankton lives and dies. And guess what happens when it dies? It falls down to the bottom of the ocean. So it takes energy from the sunlight and brings it down to the depths of the oceans. And that's called planktonic snow. It's not a lot of energy, but a lot of animals down there do use it. That's what fuels most of those deep water organisms outside of the vents. Okay, I really can't help myself. I have to do this. I have to go here. It's really fun. I told you that I loved astronomy from a very early age. I mean, that was my first love of science. That was the first scientist I was gonna be, was an astronomer, and I'm reading a lot of Carl Sagan. Always gotta put my plug in for Carl Sagan there. And on the opening pages of his book, Cosmos, he said that we're standing at the edge of a vast cosmic ocean, and we're just now getting our toes wet. And you know, when I think about our connections to the universe, that back in the 1980s, he says, of this knowledge that's out there, of everything that's out there to be known and discovered, the edge of an ocean, we're only getting our toes wet. I like to think now that we may be having our big toe wet now, but we're in a kind of in a golden age of exploration. And I can't help but look out into the night sky and see all of those stars and I realized, you know, in the last uh, 20 years, we've discovered a lot of exoplanets. Now, an exoplanet is just a planet that's outside of our solar system orbiting another star. And I can't help but think, you know, how much biology is out there, right? I mean, we're, we keep finding lots and lots of planets. And, you know, most of those planets we're finding are within a tiny radius, about 600 light years away. You know, that's not very far. That's a diameter of about 1,200 light years from us. And if you're not familiar with a light year, that is a, a distance measurement. It's how far light travels in a year, which is about 6 trillion miles. To put that into perspective, if I took every car on the planet they drive about two trillion miles every year. So about every three years, all the cars on the planet drive the equivalent of one light year. And if you've ever heard of Voyager 1 and 2, they were launched in 1977, traveling at I don't know, 20 kilometers a second. They're outside of our main part of our solar system, and they're only like 12 light hours away. They're not even a full light day away yet. So indeed, a light year is very far. But when you think about the size of our galaxy, 
is approximately a hundred thousand light years across. We're seeing a tiny fraction of it. It's been estimated that our galaxy has anywhere between 10 and 100 billion stars. Each one of their star systems has planets. I know, this is really almost unfathomable, isn't it? And that is our own galaxy. And, uh, okay, I'm gonna go further now. You guys know me. You know I'm gonna do this. Going back in time, taking that another step forward, going somewhere else. Well, let's talk about a photograph. Wait, what does a photograph have to do with this? Well, this is a very important photograph that was taken by the Hubble Space Telescope in the early 2000s, and it's called the Ultra Deep Field View. It's one of the most important photographs ever taken. Here's what they did. You know, scientists are a curious lot, right? I mean, curiosity drives us. And one of the things that they looked at when they look out in the night sky, they're like, hmm, you know, there are areas out there where we don't see a lot of stuff. Well, let's point the world's most sophisticated space telescope at nothing. Let's take a picture and let's see what we find. So that's what they did. Now, now this is a risk, right? Because I mean, people have to put in all kinds of grant proposals and proposals to get time on the Hubble telescope. And these guys are like, hey, let's take a picture of nothing. Let's see what's out there. I mean, this is curiosity, right? Look, what's, it's out there. So they opened up the Hubble Space Telescope and they took a picture of a very tiny part of the night sky. I mean, imagine holding a pencil out at arm's length and the lead, a little bit of the lead, is the entire part of the night sky they're taking a picture of. Now, interestingly, what could have come back is just as empty as they thought it would have been, and they would have found nothing. Of course, that's not what they found, right? What they found after like a 10-day exposure was an image with about 10,000 galaxies in it. I know, that is just mind-blowing. These galaxies themselves contained billions of stars. And in that one tiny speck of the night sky, there were thousands of galaxies scattered throughout the universe. And I can't help but look at the ultra deep field of view and just get lost in it. And think about all of those stars, all of those planets, all of that opportunity for life. And I wonder, you know, if another you know, alien is out there taking a biology class, looking into the night sky going, we're stardust, right? We're stardust, they're stardust too, we're all stardust. Life, no matter where you find it in the universe, is stardust, it's not just us. Okay, so I have to say, if you've never seen the Hubble ultra deep field view. You need to go pull it up right now. It is amazing. And while you're at it, check out some of the YouTube videos too. I think space.com has a good one narrated by Dave Parnell. Check that one out. It's, it's pretty awesome. Okay. Well, I hope I've at least sparked some curiosity today and uh, stay tuned for my next episode. This has been Tom Sycast.